The Cyber Threat Intelligence League documents offer the missing link, answers to key questions not addressed in the Twitter files and Facebook files. Combined, they offer a comprehensive picture of the birth of the anti-disinformation sector, or what we have called the censorship industrial complex. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have a crazy episode today. Um, Michael Schellenberger, which uh, open invite if Michael ever listens to this, I would love to have him on the show and break down tons of the different ideas and kind of challenging narratives uh, that he has presented over the years. Uh, I am a fan. I mean, not that I believe or listen or consume all of the things that he produces but he has been uh he's a very 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 interesting person that i would love to sit down and have a conversation with and he's been a really crazy voice a really prominent voice in this is exposing the truth of what we have come to think of as what is normal Michael specifically is interesting because of the perspective that he came from. You know, I was, I always, or for a very, very long time, I've been libertarian mindset. You know, I read Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard and it blew my mind, I don't know, 15 years ago. But Michael brings us a, uh, a Twitter thread, a, another, um, another release, a trove of documents, another leak uh, from a whistleblower uh, covering what has been happening with CTIL the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, and basically detailing out, and this will be, I'm sure, dropped in a bunch of different things, like like the Twitter files was like, I don't know, 22, and that was that was mostly by Matt Taibbi, or at least Matt Taibbi like, kicked it off, and I think there were actually like multiple people, and maybe Michael was even in that. I, I can't remember. I saved a lot of all of that, and I probably, I don't think I got through all of it. I think I got through maybe, maybe half of it. But the CTIL files, this is the first in the CTIL files, so I will be staying on top of it. And I actually read the first and second of the Twitter files on the show. I'll have to dig back through and see if I can find those. I'll have the link in the show notes for you. But this one is another interesting development and another, like I love being in this era of information flow where we're constantly, we still constantly get these leaks, these whistleblowers, these, you know, hidden cameras. And the pressure is higher than it's ever been for people to, to try to find avenues, to try to find cracks and leaks to get this information out and to actually tell the truth about the crap that has been going on behind the scenes and has been just kind of shoved under the rug for a really, really long time. And now this is something that specifically is kind of framed that this started in 2018 and really kind of got kicked off in 2020. But I encourage everyone to remember that this is par for the course for tons of government agencies. And we have covered a lot of this stuff well, some of this stuff on the show is not explicitly what this show is about, but I think it's highly relevant because we're talking about decentralization. We're talking about how to make the central control of these institutions and the consequences of that central control, how to mitigate this, this 
trusted third party that gets to control the narrative, that gets to control the flow of information and what the consequences of those things are. And I think this conversation in particular is extremely pertinent when we talk about the rise of Noster that has happened really in the last year and the rise of uh, Hole Punch and Keat and Synonym, these, these things that are using the Hypercore protocol with between a relay model and a purely peer-to-peer model that I think in conjunction are going to give us essentially a complete stack for the transmission of information at a scale that rivals these centralized platforms and through a means that cannot be controlled or manipulated. So that's just the preface for this. Let's go ahead and get into the audible of the Twitter, uh, the Twitter thread, and then we will have a guy's take at the end. A huge thank you to our sponsor, CoinKite and the Cold Card Hardware Wallet. If you want to keep your Bitcoin safe, get it off of exchanges and get it in your keys on your hardware wallet. If you want your sovereignty, if you want to hold a financial backup plan that cannot be controlled, cannot be frozen, an account that can't be frozen by a bank because you hold the wrong opinion or you said the wrong thing on Twitter, get yourself a cold card and send your Bitcoin to it. And lucky you, you can get 9% off with the code Bitcoin Audible. Link is in the show notes. All right, with that, let's dive into today's read. And it's titled, The CTIL Files Number 1 by Michael Schellenberger. Many people insist that governments aren't involved in censorship, but they are. And now a whistleblower has come forward with an explosive new trove of documents, rivaling or exceeding the Twitter files and Facebook files in scale and importance. CTIL Files Number 1 U.S. and U.K. military contractors created sweeping plan for global censorship in 2018. New documents show. Whistleblower makes troves of new documents available to public and racket, showing the birth of the censorship industrial complex in reaction to Brexit and Trump election in 2016. A whistleblower has come forward with an explosive new trove of documents, rivaling or exceeding the Twitter files and Facebook files in scale and importance. They describe the activities of an anti-disinformation group, called the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, or CTIL, that officially began as the volunteer project of data scientists and defense and intelligence veterans, but whose tactics over time appear to have been absorbed into multiple official projects, including those of the Department of Homeland Security. The CTI League documents offer the missing link, answers to key questions not addressed in the Twitter files and Facebook files, Combined, they offer a comprehensive picture of the birth of the anti-disinformation quote-unquote sector, or what we have called the censorship industrial complex. The whistleblower's documents describe everything from the genesis of modern digital censorship programs to the role of the military and intelligence agencies, partnerships with civil society organizations and commercial media, and the use of sock puppet accounts and other offensive techniques. Lock your shit down, explains one document about creating, quote, your spy disguise. Another explains that while such activities overseas are, quote, typically done by the CIA and NSA and the Department of Defense, censorship efforts, quote, against Americans have to be done using private partners because the government doesn't have the, quote, legal authority. 
The whistleblower alleges that a leader of the CTI League, a former British intelligence analyst, was, quote, in the room at the Obama White House in 2017 when she received the instructions to create a counter-disinformation project to stop a, quote, repeat of 2016. Over the last year, public, racket, congressional investigators, and others have documented the rise of the censorship industrial complex a network of over 100 government agencies and non-governmental organizations that work together to urge censorship by social media platforms and spread propaganda about disfavored individuals, topics, and whole narratives. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency, CISA, has been the center of gravity for much of the censorship, with the National Science Foundation financing the development of censorship and disinformation tools and other federal government agencies playing a supportive role. Emails from CISA's NGO and social media partners show that CISA created the Election Integrity Partnership, EIP, in 2020, which involved the Stanford Internet Observatory, or SIO, and other U.S. government contractors. The Election Integrity Partnership and its successor, the Virality Project, urged Twitter, Facebook, and other platforms to censor social media posts by ordinary citizens and elected officials alike. Despite the overwhelming evidence of government-sponsored censorship, it had yet to be determined where the idea for such mass censorship came from. In 2018, an SIO official and former CIA fellow, René DeResta, generated national headlines before and after testifying to the U.S. Senate about Russian government interference in the 2016 election. But what happened between 2018 and spring of 2020? The year 2019 has been a black hole in the research of the censorship industrial complex to date. When one of us, Michael, testified to the U.S. House of Representatives about the censorship industrial complex in March of this year, the entire year was missing from his timeline. An earlier start date for the censorship industrial complex. Now, a large trove of new documents, including strategy documents, training videos, presentations, and internal messages, reveal that in 2019, U.S. and U.K. military and intelligence contractors, led by a former U.K. defense researcher, Sarah Jane or S.J. Terp, developed the sweeping censorship framework. These contractors co-led CTIL, which partnered with CISA in the spring of 2020. In truth, the building of the censorship industrial complex began even earlier, in 2018. Internal CTIL, Cyber Threat Intelligence League Slack messages, show Terp, her colleagues, and officials from DHS and Facebook, all working closely together in the censorship progress. The CTIL framework and the public-private model are the seeds of what both the U.S. and U.K. would put into place in 2020 and 2021, including masking censorship within cybersecurity institutions and counter-disinformation agendas, a heavy focus on stopping disfavored narratives, not just wrong facts, and pressuring social media platforms to take down information or take other actions to prevent content from going viral. In the spring of 2020, CTIL began tracking and reporting disfavored content on social media, such as anti-lockdown narratives like, quote, all jobs are essential, quote, we won't stay home and open America now, 
CTIL created a law enforcement channel for reporting content as part of these efforts. The organization also did research on individuals posting anti-lockdown hashtags like hashtag free CA and kept a spreadsheet with details from their Twitter bios. The group also discussed requesting takedowns and reporting website domains to registrars. CTIL's approach to, quote, disinformation went far beyond censorship. The documents show that the groups engaged in offensive operations to influence public opinion, discussing ways to promote, quote, counter-messaging, co-opt hashtags, dilute disfavored messaging, create sock puppet accounts, and infiltrate private invite-only groups. In one suggested list of survey questions, CTIL proposed asking members or potential members, quote, have you worked with influence operations, for example, disinformation, hate speech, or other digital harms, etc., previously? The survey then asked whether these influence operations included, quote, active measures and, quote, psyops. These documents came to us via a highly credible whistleblower. We were able to independently verify their legitimacy through extensive cross-checking of information to publicly available sources. The whistleblower said they were recruited to participate in CTIL through monthly cybersecurity meetings hosted by DHS, or the Department of Homeland Security. The FBI declined to comment, CISA did not respond to our request for comment, and TERP and the other key CTIL leaders also did not respond to our request for comment. But one person involved, Bonnie Smalley, replied over LinkedIn saying, quote, all I can comment on is that I joined CTI League, which is unaffiliated with any government organizations, because I wanted to combat the inject bleach nonsense online during COVID. I can assure you that we had nothing to do with the government, though. Yet the documents suggest that government employees were engaged members of CTIL. One individual who worked for the Department of Homeland Security, Justin Frappier, was extremely active in CTIL, participating in regular meetings and leading trainings. CTIL's ultimate goal, said the whistleblower, quote, was to become part of the federal government. In our weekly meetings, they made it clear that they were building these organizations within the federal government, and if you built the first iteration, we could secure a job for you. Terp's plan, which she shared in presentations to information security and cybersecurity groups in 2019, was to create, quote, misinfosec communities that would include government. Both public records and the whistleblower's documents suggest that she achieved this. In April 2020, Chris Krebs, then director of CISA, announced on Twitter and in multiple articles that CISA was partnering with CTIL. It's really an information exchange, said Krebs. The documents also show that Terp and her colleagues, through a group called MisinfoSec Working Group, which included DeResta, created a censorship, influence, and anti-disinformation strategy called Adversarial Misinformation and Influence Tactics and Techniques, or AMITT, or AMIT. They wrote AMIT by adapting a cybersecurity framework developed by MITRE, a major defense and intelligence contractor that has an annual budget of $1 to $2 billion in government funding. TERP later used AMIT to develop the DISARM framework, which the World Health Organization then employed in, quote, countering anti-vaccination campaigns across Europe. A key component of TERP's work through CTIL, MisinfoSec, and AMIT was to insert the concept of, quote, cognitive security 
into the fields of cybersecurity and information security. The sum total of the documents is a clear picture of a highly coordinated and sophisticated effort by the U.S. and U.K. governments to build a domestic censorship effort and influence operations similar to the ones they have used in foreign countries. At one point, Terp openly referenced her work, quote, in the background on social media issues related to the Arab Spring. Another time, the whistleblower said she expressed her own apparent surprise that she would ever use such tactics developed for foreign nationals against American citizens. According to the whistleblower, roughly 12 to 20 active people involved in CTIL worked at the FBI or CISA. Quote, For a while they had their agency seals, FBI, CISA, whatever, next to your name. On the Slack messaging service, said the whistleblower. Terp, quote, had a CISA badge that went away at some point, the whistleblower said. The ambitions of the 2020 pioneers of the censorship industrial complex went far beyond simply urging Twitter to slap a warning label on tweets or to put individuals on blacklists. The AMIT framework calls for discrediting individuals as a necessary prerequisite of demanding censorship against them. It calls for training influencers to spread messages, and it calls for banks to cut off financial services to individuals who organize rallies or events. The timeline of CISA's work with CTIL, leading up to its work with EIP, the Election Integrity Partnership, and VP, the Virality Project, strongly suggests that the model for public-private censorship operations may have originated from a framework originally created by military contractors. What's more, the techniques and materials outlined by CTIL closely resemble materials later created by CISA's Countering Foreign Intelligence Task Force and MIS, DIS, and Malinformation Team. Over the next several days and weeks, we intend to present these documents to congressional investigators and will make public all of the documents we can while also protecting the identity of the whistleblower and other individuals who are not senior leaders or public figures. But for now, we need to take a closer look at what happened in 2018 and 2019, leading up to the creation of CTIL, as well as this group's key role in the formation and growth of the censorship industrial complex. Quote, volunteer and quote, former government agents. Bloomberg, Washington Post, and others published credulous stories in the spring of 2020 claiming that the CTI League was simply a group of volunteer cybersecurity experts. Its founders were a, quote, former Israeli intelligence official, Ohad Zeidenberg, a Microsoft, quote, security manager, Nate Warfield, and the head of SecOps for DEFCON, a hackers convention, Mark Rogers. The articles claimed that those highly skilled cybercrime professionals had decided to help billion-dollar hospitals on their own time and without pay for strictly altruistic motives. In just one month, from mid-March to mid-April, the supposedly all-volunteer CTIL had grown to, quote, 1,400 vetted members in 76 countries spanning 45 different sectors, and, quote, helped to lawfully take down 2,833 cybercriminal assets on the Internet, including 17 designed to impersonate government organizations, the United Nations, and the World Health Organization, and had, quote, identified more than 2,000 vulnerabilities in healthcare institutions in more than 80 countries, 
At every opportunity, the men stressed that they were simply volunteers motivated by altruism. Quote, I knew I had to do something to help, said Zaydenberg. Quote, there's a really strong appetite for doing good in the community, Rogers said during an Aspen Institute webinar. And yet a clear goal of CTIL's leaders was to build support for censorship among national security and cybersecurity institutions. Toward that end, they sought to promote the idea of, quote, cognitive security as a rationale for government involvement in censorship activities. Quote, cognitive security is that thing you want to have, said Terp on a 2019 podcast. You want to protect that cognitive layer. It's basically, it's about pollution. Misinformation, disinformation is a form of pollution across the internet. Terp and Pablo Brewer, another CTIL leader like Zaydenberg, had backgrounds in the military and were former military contractors. Both have worked for Softworks, quote, a collaborative project of the U.S. Special Forces Command and Doolittle Institute. The latter transfers Air Force technology through the Air Force Resource Lab to the private sector. According to Terp's bio on the website of a consulting firm she created with Brewer, quote, She's taught data science at Columbia University, was CTO of the UN's big data team, designed machine learning algorithms and unmanned vehicle systems at the UK Ministry of Defense. Brewer is a former U.S. Navy commander. According to his bio, he was, quote, military director of U.S. Special Operations Command Donovan Group and senior military advisor and innovation officer to Softworks, the National Security Agency, and U.S. Cyber Command, as well as being the director of C-4 at U.S. Naval Forces Central Command. Brewer is listed as having been in the Navy during the creation of CTIL on his LinkedIn page. In June 2018, Terp attended a 10-day military exercise organized by the U.S. Special Operations Command, where she says she first met Brewer and discussed modern disinformation campaigns on social media. Wired sum up the conclusions they drew from their meeting. Quote, Misinformation, they realized, could be treated the same way, as a cybersecurity problem. And so they created CogSec with David Perlman and another colleague, Thaddeus Grook, at the lead. In 2019, Terp co-chaired the MisinfoSec Working Group within CogSec. Brewer admitted in a podcast that his aim was to bring military tactics to use on social media platforms in the U.S. I wear two hats, he explained, the military director of the Donovan Group and one of two innovation officers at Softworks, which is completely unclassified 501c3 nonprofit that's funded by U.S. Special Operations Command. Brewer went on to describe how they thought they were getting around the First Amendment. His work with Terp, he explained, was a way to get, quote, non-traditional partners into one room, including, quote, maybe somebody from one of the social media companies, maybe a few special forces operators and some folks from Department of Homeland Security, to talk in a non-attribution, open environment in an unclassified way so that we can collaborate better, more freely, and really start to change the way that we address some of these issues. The MisinfoSec report advocated for sweeping government censorship and counter-misinformation. During the first six months of 2019, the authors say, they analyzed, quote, incidents, developed a reporting system, and shared their censorship vision with, quote, numerous state, treaty, and NGOs. In every incident mentioned, the victims of misinformation were on the political left, 
and they included Barack Obama, John Podesta, Hillary Clinton, and Emmanuel Macron. The report was open about the fact that its motivation for counter-misinformation were the twin political earthquakes of 2016, Brexit and the election of Trump. Quote, A study of the antecedents to this event lead us to the realization that there's something off-kilter with our information landscape, wrote Terp and her co-authors. The usual useful idiots and fifth columnists, now augmented by automated bots, cyborgs, and human trolls, are busily engineering public opinion, stoking up outrage, sowing doubt, and chipping away at trust in our institutions. And now it's our brains that are being hacked. The MisinfoSec report focused on information that, quote, changes beliefs through, quote, narratives, and recommended a way to counter misinformation by attacking specific links in a, quote, kill chain or influence chain from the misinfo, quote, incident before it becomes a full-blown narrative. The report laments that governments and corporate media no longer have full control of information. Quote, For a long time, the ability to reach mass audiences belonged to the nation-state, for example in the USA via broadcast licensing through ABC, CBS, and NBC. Now, however, control of informational instruments has been allowed to devolve to large technology companies who have been blissfully complacent and complicit in facilitating access to the public for information operators at a fraction of what it would have cost them by other means. The authors advocated for police, military, and intelligence involvement in censorship across Five Eyes nations and even suggested that Interpol should be involved. The report proposed a plan for AMIT and for security, intelligence, and law enforcement collaboration and argued for immediate implementation. Quote, We do not need nor can we afford to wait 27 years for the AMIT, Adversarial Misinformation and Influence Tactics and Techniques, framework to go into use. The authors called for placing censorship efforts inside of, quote, cybersecurity, even while acknowledging that Quote, misinformation security is utterly different from cybersecurity. They wrote that the third pillar of the information environment after physical and cybersecurity should be the cognitive dimension. The report flagged the need for a kind of pre-bunking to, quote, preemptively inoculate a vulnerable population against messaging. The report also pointed to the opportunity to use the DHS-funded Information Sharing and Analysis Centers, or ISACs, as the homes for orchestrating public-private censorship and argued that these ISACs should be used to promote confidence in government. It is here that we see the idea for the EIP, the Election Integrity Partnership, and VP, Virality Project. Quote, While social media is not identified as a critical sector and therefore doesn't qualify for an ISAC, a misinformation ISAC could and should feed indications and warnings into ISACs. Terp's view of, quote, disinformation was overtly political. Quote, Most misinformation is actually true, noted Terp in the 2019 podcast, but set in the wrong context. Terp is an eloquent explainer of the strategy for using anti-disinformation efforts to conduct influence operations. You're not trying to get people to believe lies most of the time. Most of the time, you're trying to change their belief sets. And in fact, really, uh, deeper than that, you're trying to change to shift their internal narratives. 
the set of stories that are your baseline for your culture, so that might be the baseline for your culture as an American. In the fall, Terp and others sought to promote their report. The podcast Terp did with Brewer in 2019 was one example of this effort. Together, Terp and Brewer described the, quote, public-private model of censorship laundering that DHS, EIP, and VP would go on to embrace. Brewer spoke freely, openly stating that the information and narrative control he had in mind was comparable to that implemented by the Chinese government, only made more palatable for Americans. Quote, If you talk to the average Chinese citizen, they absolutely believe that the Great Firewall of China is not there for censorship. They believe that it's there because the Chinese Communist Party wants to protect the citizenry, and they absolutely believe that's a good thing. If the U.S. government tried to sell that narrative, we would absolutely lose our minds and say, no, no, this is a violation of our First Amendment rights. So the in-group and out-group messaging have to often be different. The Hogwarts School of Misinformation SJ called us the Hogwarts School for Misinformation and Disinformation, said the whistleblower. They were superheroes in their own story, and to that effect, you could still find comic books on the CISA site. CTIL, the whistleblower said, quote, needed programmers to pull apart information from Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. For Twitter, they created Python code to scrape. The CTIL records provided by the whistleblower illustrate exactly how CTIL operated and tracked incidents, as well as what it considered to be disinformation. About the we-won't-stay-home narrative, CTIL members wrote, quote, Do we have enough to ask for the groups and or accounts to be taken down or at a minimum reported and checked? And, quote, Can we get all troll on their bums if not? They tracked posters calling for anti-lockdown protests as disinformation artifacts. We should have seen this one coming, they wrote about the protests. Bottom line, can we stop the spread? Do we have enough evidence to stop super spreaders? And are there other things we can do? Are there counter messengers that we can ping, etc.? CTIL also worked to brainstorm counter messaging for things like encouraging people to wear masks and discussed building an amplification network. Repetition is truth, said a CTIL member in one training. CTIL worked with other figures and groups in the censorship industrial complex. Meeting notes indicate that Graphica's team looked into adopting Amit and that CTIL worked to consult Darista about getting platforms to remove content more quickly. When asked whether Terp or other CTIL leaders discussed their potential violation of the First Amendment, the whistleblower said, quote, They did not. The ethos was that if they can get away with it, it's legal, and there were no First Amendment concerns because we have a, quote, public-private partnership. That's the word they used to disguise those concerns. Private people can do things public servants can't do, and public servants can provide the leadership and coordination. Despite their confidence in the legality of their activities, some CTIL members may have taken extreme measures to keep their identities a secret. The group's handbook recommends using burner phones, creating pseudonymous identities, and generating fake AI faces using the This Person Does Not Exist website. In June 2020, the whistleblower says, the secretive group took actions to conceal their activities even more. One month later, in July 2020, SIO's director, Alex Stamos, emailed Kate Starbird from the University of Washington's Center for an Informed Public, writing, quote, We're working on some election monitoring ideas with CISA, and I would love your informal feedback before we go too far down this road. Things that should have been assembled a year ago are coming together quickly this week. 
That summer, CISA also created the Countering Foreign Influence Task Force, which has measures that reflect CTIL and AMIT methods and includes a, quote, real fake graphic novel the whistleblower said was first pitched within CTIL. The DISARM framework, which AMIT inspired, has been formally adopted by the European Union and the United States as part of a, quote, common standard for exchanging structured threat information on foreign information manipulation and interference. Until now, the details of CTIL's activities have received little attention, even though the group received publicity in 2020. In September 2020, Wired published an article about CTIL that reads like a company press release. The article, like the Bloomberg and Washington Post stories that spring, accepts unquestioningly that the CTIL was truly a, quote, volunteer network of, quote, former intelligence officials from around the world. But unlike the Bloomberg and Washington Post stories, Wired also describes CTIL's anti-misinformation work. The Wired reporter does not quote any critic of the CTIL activities, but suggests that some might see something wrong with them. Quote, I asked him, CTIL co-founder Mark Rogers, about the notion of viewing misinformation as a cyber threat. All of these bad actors are trying to do the same thing, Rogers says. In other words, the connection between preventing cybercrimes and, quote, fighting misinformation are basically the same, because they both involve fighting what the DHS and CTI League alike call malicious actors, which is synonymous with bad guys. Quote, Like Terp, Rogers takes a holistic approach to cybersecurity, the Wired article explains. First, there's physical security, like stealing data from a computer onto a USB drive. Then there's what we typically think of as cybersecurity, securing networks and devices from unwanted intrusions. And finally, you have what Rogers and Terp called cognitive security, which essentially is hacking people, using information, or more often, misinformation. CTIL appears to have generated publicity about itself in the spring and fall of 2020 for the same reason EIP did, to claim later that its work was all out in the open and that anybody who suggested it was secretive was engaging in a conspiracy theory. Quote, The Election Integrity Partnership has always operated openly and transparently, EIP claimed in October 2022. We published multiple public blog posts in the run-up to the 2020 election, hosted daily webinars immediately before and after the election, and published our results in a 290-page final report in multiple peer-reviewed academic journals. Any insinuation that information about our operations or findings were secret up to this point is disproven by the two years of free public content we have created. But as internal messages have revealed, much of what EIP did was secret as well as partisan and demanding of censorship by social media platforms, contrary to its claims to the contrary. EIP and VP, the Election Integrity Partnership and Virality Project, ostensibly ended. But CTIL is apparently still active today. Several of its members list CTIL as an organization that is still active on their LinkedIn pages. I think it's critically important to remember how many adversaries there are and specifically to remember how much those adversaries are certain that they're doing the right thing and they're the heroes. One of the best things you can do to protect yourself and gain a small island of sovereignty 
is to buy Bitcoin and hold your own keys on a secure hardware wallet. This is why I am working with CoinKite and the Cold Card hardware wallet. I have a ton of hardware wallets and I am an avid tester and user of them. And I absolutely love my cold card. My cold card and my tap signers, actually, which is also by CoinKite. The cold card is a truly air-gapped device by default, and it is one of the most thorough devices that I know of for keeping your keys safe both from malicious actors and hackers on the internet, but also physical attackers, people who might actually get your device. I highly encourage everyone to use a BrickMe pin, which is a really awesome feature of the cold card, where you have a dummy pin that if someone else types in, it completely bricks the device. And there are so many other neat little features like this to add that extra security, to give you that extra option in unique or edge case adversarial situations. If you did not know about that one or haven't looked through all of the features and things that the cold card does to protect your Bitcoin, I highly encourage you to do so at bitcoinaudible.com slash coldcard. CoinKite is one of the longest running Bitcoin security device companies in the space with one of the longest trusted devices out there. And you can get one for yourself or for your family members for you got the holiday season coming up at bitcoinaudible.com slash coldcard. You will find the link plus a 9% discount with code Bitcoin Audible right there in the show notes. You know, I think the biggest takeaway for these sorts of things, when, when this sort of stuff gets exposed, is to remember that this is the tip of the tip of the iceberg. That what we see, what gets revealed is almost nothing in compared in comparison to what's there and in fact when we're looking at what the actual cia and nsa end up doing i mean you can look at the like vault seven and some of these uh the the earlier and larger hacks and the the things that you know wikileaks uh ha has worked insanely hard and at their risk to keep available to us the snowden leaks and the bradley manning leaks like none of this is new and they will use whatever tools at their disposal to get the results and they don't think about this they they this is this is to them business as usual like these are tactics like i mean you see through all of this these are all derived from military tactics these are all just kind of copies and rebuildings of frameworks that some military contractor or national security institution has already built out that has already been using I mean, MKUltra was back in the 70s or 80s, I think it was. And it was explicitly about having control within the national media organizations so that they can control the narrative. The control of information, of what people think, has always been one of the prime directives of government. Because selling your government as the good guy as the institution of patriotism, as the source of the, as the source, source of the mental equivocation of society, that to save society is to save the U.S. government, is to, is to save our political institutions. It is critical to understand that this is calculated, and there's a reason it's calculated, because it's critical, it's crucial to the survival of government institutions. 
If we ever think that they aren't the good guy, if we are ever exposed to the horrible things that they do in the context of what would happen if a normal person did them, well, then the facade of them having this moral exception to all of the rules of society falls away. They must convince everyone that their narrative, the way they see the world, is true. This is why they co-opt academia. This is why they co-opt Hollywood. This is why they co-opt the, the national, like the news broadcasting and uh, national media institutions. This is not a new development. This has been fundamental to the nation state for as long as there's been one. And I like to think we're entering an age where everyone isn't so unbelievably naive as to think there's just a bunch of really good guys who care really, really a whole lot about the Constitution and they're, they're super restrained and like what they do and how they take their actions and, and they think very closely and seriously about the fact that no, these are American citizens and, and it's different. We have to treat them different. But it's a fairy tale. What they see is good guys and bad guys. They are the good guys and everyone who gets in the way of what they think should happen are the bad guys. The Twitter files, the Facebook files, the CTIL files, the Vault 7 leaks, like all of these things, the Snowden and Bradley Manning revelations, all of these things should make it extremely clear that what they think of as good or bad is, has nothing to do with moral principles of how these people are acting. They engage in murder, they engage in blackmail, they engage in censorship, they engage in explicit and obvious broad-scale lying. They think these things are necessary and the default. They probably excuse them in their own minds like any other normal human does, because that's what they are. They're normal-ass humans with all the same faults and a deep-seated self-interest that they cannot get around and that their political power and their positions reinforce so that they can excuse more and more and worse and worse behaviors. They do not have principles. They have written and explicitly detailed over and over again that the mentality inside these institutions is that what supports them is good and everything that gets in their way is bad. And they can excuse the complete and utter trampling of any of these people's rights or even their lives because of their imagined future where if people believe quote-unquote the wrong thing, it will be disaster. It is literal thought crime. It is not a coincidence that every single time you have someone come out and someone of legitimacy, someone who has an insanely long and concrete record of their contributions to the medical field, like whatever it is, the, the amount of times that this has happened, people in like the same thing has happened with client science. Like it's, it's crazy that like everybody seems to forget about climate gate. Everybody seems to forget about the fact that we have basically a story that's shockingly similar to this of scientists openly talking back and forth in emails saying, well, the data doesn't show this, but if we visualize it this way, it really helps to make sure that people don't misunderstand and believe the wrong narrative. This is over and over again. These are the same tactics and the same mentality. And I think it's a natural consequence of the arrogance of people in positions that they believe they are above everyone else. That they believe they are above scrutiny. And we've become this, this society. You know, going back to yesterday's Guys Take episode, everybody has become dependent. Like we we think that everything requires somebody else's permission. And if somebody has the right 
you know, extra letters behind their name, that they are simply the source of truth. I mean, the number, I mean, think about the psychosis, the literal, like, insanity of the whole what is a woman era that we live in, that this claim that, I mean, and, and that this is a genuine, this is a genuine statement, a claim that people make in full honesty that they actually believe that to determine whether or not someone is a man or a woman, that they ask, are you a biologist? And understand, I don't care what your opinion on that matter is. I want to point out the unbelievable personal dependency, the complete lack of mental independence and fortitude of any kind to believe that common sense can be trumped because somebody is a biologist. That as long as someone has the right credentials, they can completely overcome anything that is completely and blatantly obvious. Like that I have to be a veterinarian to know the difference between a cat and a dog. And that if I look and I say, no, that's definitely a cat, that I'm quote unquote stepping out of my lane and only a veterinarian can conclusively tell us one way or the other. When logic and argumentation were actually taught, that was understood to be a extremely common fallacy of an appeal to an authority, which should be completely obvious, but we're literally a society, an appeal to authority society. And I think that this is closely tied to the nature of our money. I think this is deeply tied to what fiat money means. If there is always someone with the authority to override all of the quote-unquote truths, all of the prices, all of the signal of the economic system to convince us that everything getting more expensive is good for us and everything getting more affordable is bad for us, that debt and consumption help the economy and production and savings are greedy and hoarding. I think there's only so much of obviously contradictory things that get taught to us by this system that when you have to just constantly just be like, well, I don't under, I guess I can never understand it. I guess it's just only smart people get it. That you just kind of, you just kind of succumb. That at some point you just give up and you say, well, none of this is understandable. And I just have to ask the authority. The authority is the only one that knows the answers. And when you make a system that makes it so easy to gatekeep, where someone is the particular authority, someone is the particular arbiter of what is true and what is not, you create these closed off cultures of self-importance that feed back on themselves. And one of the things to point out with the CTIL and a lot of these institutions, this the Twitter files and the Facebook files, a lot of these things that we've just increasingly seen how these people behave and how they think about themselves and how they think about everyone else, like what their comparison, their mental model is. And I want to point out a sentence from, a, a, the quote from Terp that was used in the 2019 podcast. It says, most misinformation is actually true but set in the wrong context. Now, if you have any picture in your mind of the mainstream media, at least for me, I cannot think a more perfectly obvious example of lying about the context, of just completely, like just aggressively and universally doing everything they can to take everything out of context so that they can use it to blow up. I mean, like this is the tactic of all tactics in order to get clicks and control what people think, to try to get a message out there first 
before anybody who actually does any research or actually does speak some semblance of the truth, how can we precede them to make sure that they think this is negative? And understand all of the tactics, every single thing that has been, that was being laid out in, uh, by TERP, by this institution, is explicitly doing those same things. They're, they're literally explaining how they are, they are lying about the context. Listen to this. AMIT framework calls for discrediting individuals as a necessary prerequisite of demanding censorship against them. It calls for training influencers to spread messages. And it calls for trying to get banks to cut off financial services to individuals who organize rallies or events. The timeline of, CIS, the timeline of CISA's work with CTIL leading up to its work with EIP and VP strongly suggests that the model for public-private censorship operations may have originated from a framework originally created by military contractors. So I want to go back to the beginning of that. It calls for discrediting individuals as a necessary prerequisite for demanding censorship against them. Part of their fundamental tactics, their entire set of strategies, is to set a context of you should not listen to this person. This person is a lunatic so that when they speak actual facts, you will not believe them. It is the mirror image of what Terp said is the problem that they're trying to fight. Notice in all of this, their tactics aren't tell the truth. Their tactics aren't, well, we will just make the, the genuine story, the, the, more, uh, the more compelling and true set of events are properly told. No, their tactics are aggressively discredit them, prepare for discrediting them, set the stage so that when they do say something, we can already have this in the bag and we can point to, don't you remember their liars and frauds? Get them kicked off of social media, get them banned and shadow banned so that their, their uh, posts cannot go viral and that people cannot see their narrative. Get their bank accounts shut down, attack their advertisers and their income, and then harass them with an army of fake trolls on the internet. And all of this is because of the problem, stated in her own words, in her own explanation, that put another way simply means to state something that is true without their bias. This is the conclusion leading the evidence. This is saying that the bias informs what the evidence means, that the, the narrative informs what the facts actually tell us. This is why strict principles, having a, a extremely well thought out understanding what moral principles are and actually taking the time in your own mind to beat the hell out of them to understand what is right and what is wrong what is an act that is morally acceptable and morally reprehensible that these principles must be independent they must come before your feelings about them because otherwise all we have is our bias and our feelings External principles are literally the only thing that we actually have to, to put in check those things, those, those constants. The fact that we feel a certain way about a thing or that we have some set bias, we have some self-interest or some reason we might think or do uh, or act or act in a certain way. Without actually understanding things from first principles, without actually going back and going, okay, well, it's, it's just wrong to lie. 
It's wrong to censor people. It's wrong to hit people. If you win an argument by beating your opponent up, you haven't won the argument. All you've done is shown that you're too much of a coward to actually meet them with logic. And so instead, because you can't control yourself, you beat the crap out of them. That is not to win an argument. That is to overpower your opponent with violence because you have no argument and you're a coward. That is exactly what these people are doing. They're saying we will not meet them in argument. We will not meet them in debate. We will not contest their narrative or their facts. Quote, repetition is truth. We will repeat our bullshit bias over and over again. We will reframe the way people think about the issue from the beginning. We will undermine any independent thought, any principle that they may have, and pre-program them with a narrative and a bias while actively discrediting anyone who challenges that narrative and bias so we can inform the way that they think about the issue from the beginning. And their tools, explicitly their framework, is to censor, harass, and defame. And also notice, also notice how the mainstream media wasn't a challenger in this at all. That the mainstream media didn't even ask them questions. That they saw it, that the mainstream media was on their side. The corporate media was in the bag. It wasn't even part of the issue. The problem was all of these people on social media telling different stories and the fact that these platforms let those narratives go, let them travel, let them become viral. And their entire goal was to redesign these systems and force these companies to change their algorithms and, and deliberately, like individually attack people who actually had high reach with their conflicting narratives and their inconvenient facts so that other people would not hear it. There's another great quote from this. It says, quote, The report laments that governments and corporate media no longer have full control of information. I want to pause that right there. Quote, For a long time, the ability to reach mass audiences belonged to the nation state. For example, in the USA via broadcast licensing through ABC, CBS, and NBC. Now, however, control of informational instruments has been allowed to devolve to large technology companies who have been blissfully complacent and complicit in facilitating access to the public for information operators at a fraction of what it would have cost them by other means. This, this is something we've talked about a lot on this show. How the technology, the change in the technological environment is what is splintering all of these narratives. That what we had in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, when the government basically controlled the, the 98th percent arm of how information travels through the economy, travels at that scale. You know, you know what can 20 million people see and be exposed to? There, were, there was an extremely small avenue for what could reach that many people. You had to have access to an incredible infrastructure. To, a, to the literal broadcasting agencies in order to just get an audience of that many people. There were no other options. This allowed for very easy, very targeted control of the narrative so that you did not have to attack the individuals. It was essentially preemptive control. If you control the information flow, then you don't have to attack the people, and you can make it appear as if everybody has free speech and there's free opinion and the, the narrative is actually being developed naturally, but that's simply because there is no bandwidth for an alternative conversation. 
This is the same thing that I talk about with money. This is the same reason fiat money and the dollar has been so dominant. There is no bandwidth to exit at the multi-trillion dollar scale. This is why when I come back to all of this, it is a technological problem. What YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, what, like TikTok, all of these social medias, what all of these platforms and new avenues for moving information through social groups, through a social graph, what this allowed. Remember, it is the retweet. It, it's the, it, it was the share button on Facebook that created the notion of virality of being able to share bridge from your social graph to someone else's social graph. And via these six degrees of separation, you can have one post or one really clever way of framing something or one different opinion, different assessment of the same facts, a bias that challenges the supposed approved bias could, for essentially zero cost, get in front of 20 million people, 40 million people, a hundred million people. This is the printing press all over again. The church hated that people could type up, that they could make their own versions, their own assessments, their own interpretations of the Bible, and you didn't have to go to church and listen to the priest. The like 10x in literacy rates from, I think, the statistic or whatever, I, at the time, I can't remember specifically, but I, I just remember how profound it was over the 16th century, so it was, it was in the 1500s, if I remember my years correctly, that at the beginning it was like sub 10%, and at the end it was like 80 to 90%. Those literacy rates were a disaster. This was the end of the world, according to the authorities of, at the time. This is what's happening to the internet. The fact that we can challenge their narratives, their, their view, their bias leading into, I mean, what is their bias? Their bias is they're the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys. And they don't care about free speech. They don't care about the Constitution. They don't have moral principles by which they are guiding themselves by. They think that the good guys can just do whatever they need to do to, to stop the bad guys. That if they can get away with it, it's legal. There are more alphabet agencies in the government with the supposed authority to get away with all of these things. To be able... There's... there's explicit bills that say you can now spy on American citizens, you think every agency that even has a ghost of a hint that maybe they should do that doesn't have some little program that's happening somewhere that's engaging in this? You think, you think people at the CIA who can fail every audit that they've ever been given and can just kind of lose $2 trillion, you think they have any restraint about doing stuff like this? Just go read some of these training documents. Go read some of the stuff in Vault 7. They don't. They don't. They openly talk about it. Like, they're not stupid. It's crazy to me that it's, it's almost universally called a conspiracy theory that people actually would, that these institutions, that the CIA, the NSA, the, the, the FBI... CTIL, I mean, like, just like, the, I mean, the list is so long. Like, like we're talking about like a, a, a literally, I can't possibly read it all out on a podcast list of agencies that would be doing, that would very likely be engaged in this sort of thing. And it goes from federal to state to county. I mean, we're talking about all levels of this where they have this perceived authority that they can be above the law or that it's okay for them as good guys to do some very, very questionable thing. Because, of course, they're just stopping the bad guys. 
just so happens that a lot of the bad guys end up being the ones that get get in their way of doing what they're doing. But it's like, and I remember holding this perspective. I remember thinking that this was, that one day in my life, I thought, there was a day that I thought this was crazy. And then I read too much stuff. But the idea that people in the government would actively discuss and think about systems, think about ways to manipulate, to manipulate people, to control people. That controlling people would be something that was explicitly discussed through the context of getting them to believe bullshit that helps their, their system or helps their power, helps their institution, whatever it is, that they would never do this actively, that it would never be out in the open and they would not talk about it. That everything a politician or an institution or the FBI or anybody, everything that any of these institutions say is all on the up and up. They're being completely honest with us, and when they, you know, repeat those lines, we're going to catch the bad guys and we got to stop the terrorists, that none of that is ulterior motives. None of that is just, like, good marketing to frame the insane violations of all of our basic rights that these people are engaged in. That, no, these people couldn't possibly think of it in terms of marketing. They couldn't possibly think of it as PR for the power that they want to have. That's a conspiracy theory. No, that's people. That's how people work. If they weren't doing it, well, then they would simply lose the power to the people who are doing it. You could maybe, maybe get lucky and have a single election cycle at the very beginning of some sort of institution that was all created by altruistic actors and actually had the angelic betterment of society and never openly talk about or think about actually controlling or violating the rights of other people in order to keep that institution funded and in power and with the authority that they seek to have for like one year. Maybe. You'd have to have a a crazy confluence of coincidences and just the most wholesome people who are willing to put in all the hard work and be true true genuine volunteers to bring good to the world as probably has never existed before but let's say it happens you could do it for one year and then those people will be absolutely beaten to death they will lose out so fast to someone with enormous amounts of funding that thinks about it from the context of how do we control and manipulate the way people think how do we get one sentence into the brain of a billion people 10 times in the next month Anybody who was actually transparent and told the truth would be so easy to defeat in that system. Because how many times really is the truth exactly the thing that we want to hear? Not very often, honestly. This is why this is a technology problem. This is why we need to undermine the rails by which they control the message. Because otherwise we can't figure out the truth because the only way to actually determine the truth is the same way as the only way to determine the, the actual market price, the actual signal in the market. Information signals work the exact same way. You will only ever figure out which idea is the strongest against reality if it is also the idea that is strongest against all of the other ideas. The one that can be defended the best by the most. The one with the absolute fewest edges that contradict its center. To claim we can know the truth or we can know the quote-unquote correct narrative by shutting down everyone, by, by preceding, by preceding the facts, 
preceding genuine data with a bias that we assume cannot be questioned is the same as saying we must censor, defame, defund, and attack any conclusions or data that disagrees with our hypothesis. It is to reverse the very process of science. I want to point out another two things real quick, too. Going back to the idea that Bloomberg and the Washington Post and even Wired with the, the single, you know, questioning statement or not even not even a questioning statement, but the hint of you know, maybe maybe there's some pushback against what this institution is doing. But the Bloomberg and Washington Post did not even engage in journalism when it came to this. They, they, just, they just wrote a marketing report for what this institution was doing. And within their own walls, they openly, they openly state that the mainstream media is not a part of this problem. That, that they're on board with all of this. And in fact, it's a terrible, terrible outcome that the government and these mainstream media organizations, the corporate media, doesn't have control anymore. This is the problem is that the avenues for information control, the bandwidth for information outside of what is controlled, is too high. There's another quote from this thread. It says, Terp later, Terp later used AMIT to develop the DISARM framework, which the World Health Organization then employed in, quote, countering anti-vaccination campaigns across Europe. Again, this framework is the discredit everyone who says differently, censor them, get their bank accounts shut down, and abuse and harass them online. Now, I want everyone who, I know everybody doesn't believe the same crap about the COVID vaccine or COVID or anything that's going on there, but I guarantee you that most of the people listening to this are certain that someone who says something that's against the narrative is quote-unquote discredited. How do you know that? Where'd you hear it? Did you check? Because their framework for engaging in this fight is to use the media they control to discredit the people that talk bad about them. Going back to the fact that this is a technology problem, it was the printing press that ultimately brought down the religious state, the bandwidth of information around their gated truth grew to such a degree that they could not control it anymore. And it led to the Renaissance, eventually the Industrial Revolution, and the greatest shift in how we organize society and our systems of governance that we'd seen since government became a thing. The internet is another order of magnitude in the bandwidth of that information exchange. It might be two orders of magnitude. It's crazy. It is really crazy. And we're just beginning to see, this thing's only 20 years old, really. Like, uh, you think about like just the time it's taken for people to adopt it. The bandwidth hasn't even been able to reach. The network hasn't even had the reach for all the people. Like, like think about it, like Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, uh, uh, the iPhone, like social media on a mobile phone, these things are all 2000s, 2004, 2003, 2009 for the iPhone, I think, 2000, yeah, 2009. We think of these as normal, but these things are brand new. We are witnessing the first wave of fallout, the first 
shattering of political narratives, of the consensus of what the hell drives the world and what our collective story is, we're witnessing the first major wave of this. And this is why I think to protect it, because it's a technological problem, what we need is a network that can't be controlled. Noster and Hole Punch, I think, are going to be two of the most important technologies for increasing that bandwidth now around the platforms. We need social media as a protocol. Anyone who listens to this and is not like a Bitcoiner and not someone who's listening to the show and already on Noster, anybody who is a Bitcoiner and is not on Noster, you have got to get on Noster. You've got to get on Keat. They, like these things aren't perfect yet. Now I'm I'm actually shocked. I use Nostr more than I use Twitter. If it weren't for the sheer size of the Twitter network, I wouldn't still be doing it. I would just go ahead and leave. And I know a whole bunch of people is like, "Oh, stick to your guns and just just abandon it." Well, it's about reach. It's about getting people. Like nobody on Nostr needs to hear the explanation of Bitcoin. I want to be able to get in front of people who need to hear that message. Those people are on Twitter. Those people are on Facebook. If I relegated myself entirely to Noster, it would be like going to a Bitcoin meetup to convince people that Bitcoin is useful. But I do spend most of my time on Noster, and it's, it's crazy to think that this thing is a protocol, that this does not have a center, that this, this is not a centralized system because of how well it works. And the flow of money that can happen on Noster, the zapping ecosystem is crazy. In fact, if Michael Schellenberger listens to this, please get on Noster. Understand that the problem is a technological problem. And the platforms, the social media platforms, have been, for a very long time, our avenue to get information around the corporate media. But that is no longer becoming, that is no longer an avenue because they realize how big of a problem this is. As their consensus breaks down, they are going to squeeze as hard as they can. They are going to choke the shit out of all of the streams of information. A great example, if I go looking for the information on the CIA uh, losing $2.3 trillion, you know what I get? One, I get whole pages of debunks. I just know the CIA didn't lose it, the CIA doesn't lose it. Now you go read it, you know what they say? is that they do not have an audit trail for $2.3 trillion worth of money. And they say that this is debunked not because they have an audit trail for the money. It's debunked because the reason it was called out is because, quote, they haven't updated their systems, which means that losing the $2.3 trillion isn't that they, they don't know where the $2.3 trillion went. It's that they don't know where it went because they didn't update their systems. It's like, bitch, how is that not the same thing? And you don't think, you, you, you don't think that these, this is one of the most secretive institutions in the world who engages in criminal activity at an insane scale, that engages in assassination, that engages in backdoor wars all over the world, that manipulates elections all over the place, that explicitly has a framework for manipulating foreign opinion who have been caught red-handed in massive amounts of arms dealing, shipping guns into the country, shipping criminals into the country, blackmailing politicians, torture, murder of Americans overseas, putting back doors in tons of American software systems and actual hardware in actual chips, putting tiny spy chips into USB ports so that all devices as they stream information through will call home and report back what's happening. 
to control and put in monitors at all major internet junctions, all data junctions, that have literally used the military to control the drug trade in other countries. They created a malware system that they sell to other governments to completely take over anybody's smartphone. And it's openly used by tyrants all over the world. I've actually spoken to someone personally who has had their, their phone, their entire mobile, their smartphone system, their mobile life completely pwned by this software. Are we really going to be so naive as to think that this institution doesn't have a paper trail for $2.3 trillion because they just haven't gotten around to updating their computers? That that's a proper debunking of a problem that is of that f***ing scale? I mean, do we really think that the reason that my cursory search of not looking for a debunking, but just searching for the CIA lost trillions of dollars, all I got were mainstream articles quote-unquote debunking it, and not one of them had any information debunking it. Not one. To say they didn't have a paper trail because their systems are old and that was the real issue is not a debunking. That's not journalism. That's the opposite of journalism. That's a PR campaign. That's running defense for an institution that has just robbed us of $2.3 trillion and refuses to tell us how they spent it. Do we really think it's done in our favor? That this is for our benefit? All we can do in the political realm is throw wrenches in the machine to slow it down. The only solution is a technological solution. The printing press was the bandwidth to undermine the church. The internet and the social media platforms were the bandwidth to undermine the traditional corporate media. Noster and Hole Punch will be the bandwidth and the technological solution to get around the centralized platforms. And Bitcoin will be the bandwidth to get around the fiat money apparatus that is reinforcing and funding all of this through theft and counterfeit. And even though this isn't really the podcast for it, I also think that AI is going to be critical in that because AI is going to be what allows us to organize and set up productive systems and institutions outside of their purview that we won't need the platforms we won't need the licenses we won't need the app stores i do not think we are far away from a world where we can actually just use blocks of code and ask an llm and an llm actually writes on the fly software from a set of core functions to complete a task in the way that we want to complete it where we, you and I don't even use the same piece of software. We use the same blocks of software and an LLM on the fly creates a piece of software that's catered to you or me. And I think one of the subtle implications, what is implied in so much of the conversation around AI is that the danger is how much power it gives to the individual. The risk is literally, quote unquote, everybody has the equivalent of a nuclear bomb, which is an absurd way to say Everyone now is incredibly powerful by themselves and in small groups. Notice that their fear is that they aren't the only ones with nuclear bombs anymore. Now, actually equating AI with a nuclear bomb is idiotic. But I think that the way we find ourselves in a future that obsoletes this problem, that obsoletes their control and their authority, is with technologies that give us independence. Monetary independence with Bitcoin and Lightning social and information flow independence with Noster, Q, 
Keat and Hole Punch, and systems and operation independence with AI. So going back to something that I said earlier on in this conversation, CTIL is not the problem. The Hogwarts school of misinformation and disinformation is not the issue. Exposing them and pointing out where these systems are working against us is an incredibly important part of changing the mental framework. But if you can't even get your message out about their exposure, that the CTIL files get shadow banned, get your account removed, if you don't have the bandwidth to tell the truth, and we're not using the technology that gets around it, then it's the equivalent of complaining about the power and the authority of the church and the priest in the confessional. Our one job to get our foot out the door is, I think, to learn the technologies that liberate us, that free the bandwidth from the infrastructure that they control. We cannot defeat them by playing the game when they can change the rules and we cannot. We have to make a new game that obsoletes the old. That is what these technologies are. We have the solution to these problems, the fundamental long-term problems. We just have to install and use them. With that, we'll close this one out. A thank you to CoinKite for supporting this show, and a thank you to all you guys. If you want to hear more, subscribe to Bitcoin Audible and AI Unchained. I am Guy Swan, and until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. Words can light fires in the minds of men. Words can wring tears from the hardest hearts. Patrick Rothfuss, from the name of the wind.